Inescapably foreign. Welcome to Without Borders. I'm your host, Nolan Yuma. This is the show for the inescapably foreign. Today, I am here with Vida Rasafi. And if you didn't tune in last week, we left off talking about bureaucracy and immigration. Uh, Vida was describing her experiences living as an expat in various African countries and some of the corruption around that. But now we're going to get into her other immigration story, which is as a refugee going to Belgium. Okay, so Vida, can you tell us what it was like as a refugee in Belgium and what it was like to seek asylum and the whole process around that? Oh, wow. Um, I have a short answer to that question and I have a long one. Um, I would maybe, uh, I wouldn't satisfy the curiosity of your listeners with the short answer, but I am going to provide it anyway. Um, the experience of seeking asylum in, in Belgium was an, uh, eye opening and very much uh, a, a catalyzer for my self-actualization process. I can say that absolutely with all confidence. Uh, since, you know, you put my life in contrast as an Iranian uh, expat in Africa, student in Belgium, and then asylum seeker in Belgium and then refugees because you know it's important to know the difference when you're an asylum seeker and you're not yet refugee you experience life the same life very differently than when you get your status and you become a refugee and uh and can that, you explain some of the differences there absolutely this is something that I also explain in my workshops uh to people because not everyone knows it you see when we talk about immigrants we are talking about mostly like people who for earning, uh, uh, doing their job, they travel to another country or they're for living another life. So when we talk about asylum seekers, we are talking about a group of people who, because of a reason, a valid reason that their life in their home country is in danger and their human rights is violated. Uh, they go and seek asylum, seek refuge in another country. The process that you have from seeking asylum, then become your asylum seeker, up to the moment that you receive the status of refugee, that's not a uh, very short procedure or, or, you know, it takes time. So from the time that you become officially asylum seeker to officially refugee or not you are going to live a different life because then probably uh, unlike an immigrant that you have your own home and your own you know financial basis to 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 survive you are sent to a refugee camp and we know that for example in europe not every refugee camp is the same and there are refugee camps that are basically you know containers you know you you have to live with four or five other people in the container and most of the times is 
um, these are the refugee camps are the buildings like old buildings, army buildings that um, uh, uh, and now they actually repurpose uh, it for uh, for uh, accommodating the refugee asylum seekers. And then once your procedure is over and they, you get an answer like, okay, um, you're recognized as a refugee. You have the right to stay here and you become resident or no, bye-bye, go back to your country or, you know, uh, it's your problem now. Then it's a different, uh, different situation. From all the people that you work with, what is the average amount of time? Now you work in Belgium, so we, we can talk about Belgium. What is the average amount of time that people are in that kind of limbo and maybe staying in those containers and staying in those camps? Uh, Sometimes between like two months up to five years or six years. We had people who were really like uh, their children were born there. The children went to school. When they were still in the camp and they were still when they're teenager so you can see that um it it the range is quite long and on average let's say a year two years two years and a half um and it's not uncommon that some people have to wait for like four or five years that's yeah. insane and you can imagine that uh so you are living five years of your life uh, with a different social status in a completely you you can you're able to work of course you you may work but of course it's not uh, for everyone um, uh, the 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 option but I mean raising children in two two small rooms. Um, yeah. Becoming a teenager in two small rooms, living with 400 other people, that's, that's a different life. And now from your personal story, so how, how long were you there for? Well, uh, luckily for me, it was a very fast procedure. I was uh, in total four months in, in, in the camp. Uh, the yeah. first two months, uh, I was waiting for my, my uh, uh, let's say, the decision. And then the next two months, I had time to look for a place to go and uh, leave the center. And those two months were so frustrating because, um, you know, uh, as a as a refugee, there is a yeah a stereotype around refugees that yeah you are lazy, you you don't work, you don't have money, so it's very difficult to rent a house. People are not really, uh, yeah, uh, willing to rent your your place because all the stereotypes are ah, you don't take care of my house properly. And I remember that uh, uh, period, these two months that I was looking for a house was so frustrating. I was so at outraged because I knew that it was simply because they don't trust me enough and and. I had this, like, um, uh, in a sense, the, the, like a question that, look, I'm the same person, maybe even the better person than last year that I was a student here, and I had no difficulty renting a place. 
And now with my... It's crazy to me, these stereotypes and the rate. There's something what I'm trying to do with this show and my project in general is just trying to break all this because, well, you <laughs> as one example already, right? Brilliant woman. You speak different languages, three degrees. Um, I mean, I've had so many other people on the show where they show they're, they're, they're immigrants and they contribute so much to society. Now, I know you're not a capitalist, but <laughs> in America... Um, most of the big companies that were created and a lot of these multi-billion dollar corporations and say what you want about the co corporations, but they do contribute in some ways. And these are started by immigrants most of the time, right? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, there's a little interjection there, but... Um, you see, um, the stereotypes are... Um, they have this social... Um, nature of it because it becomes collective but at the same time it's also pretty much at psychological level and individual level in a sense because at the same time um, it's about you using your common sense um, the housing of newcomers and refugees in Belgium has been always problematic. Uh, we know that. Um, politically driven because, I mean, ideologically driven because um, somehow they don't want it to be facilitated. They don't want to pamper refugees. They want it to be as hard as possible. So the, the, the policymakers, they have this naive idea that if it's not easy if we don't pamper them they're not gonna keep coming <laughs> you know that is the logic of our policymakers because they think that they are providing positive incentive for them to come but then at the same time despite all the you know they 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 they're not aware that these refugees you know um escaping war uh, putting their lives on the palm of their hand, crossing oceans in the unsafe way, uh, dragging their babies and children behind. Women who get raped, women who have nothing, like they are highly traumatized during this trip that they, they you know, the paying the human traffickers. Uh, getting getting hostage by human traffickers to just demand more money from the families back home. And then, despite all these, people know this, huh? Despite all these, they have to flee their home because they have no hope whatsoever. They are afraid that they're going to die there. They go through all these hardships to reach here and... And the po our, our policymakers, they think that if they make it difficult for them, you know, to find a house, they're gonna keep come uh, uh, stop coming. But that's really, you know, it's a very unrealistic you uh, logic. You said how have. there's this misconception so that immigrants are for, um, that they're just gonna feed from the tax dollars, and as you say, it's like the, black the whole process of them getting to the country shows that these are the least lazy people. Right? These are people that are going to fight to make a living. They're gonna fight to do something for their family, for their community. Of course, you want people like that in your country, and 
there are examples of the people that uh, might take advantage of the system, right? But that is definitely not the majority. And so, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And um, unfortunately, uh, those positive uh, anecdotes, those positive uh, uh, examples are lost within the, uh, that the negativity of it. And some people are not willing to listen. And, um, and as I said, that collective side is one thing, but sometimes I come across people who are really are they you know they say you you cannot wake up someone who's pretending to sleep because some people are really not uh, uh, they don't want to see the reality and and accept that yeah because yeah the and th that has to do with the concept of inferiority and superiority superiority and that privilege that you have as a superior it makes you feel good let's face it. it it's nice for some people to to feel superior mm -hmm. now one of the reasons you're you were able to uh, obtain the refugee status is because you're baha'i right uh so i'm yes. curious to learn a little bit more about the baha'i religion i i know the basics around it right i know that uh, Baha'i teachings are about accepting everyone, no matter the race, no matter the gender. Um, so to me, it seems like a very positive uh, religion or at least a positive way of thinking. Um, so can you describe to me a little bit more about how how you got into this and how, how it guides your life possibly? Absolutely. So um, I should mention first that I'm not a born Baha'i. So, you know, Baha'is in Iran the last 200 years, um, they have been politically and socially uh, persecuted and, and, and deprived from their human rights. Uh, one luck that I had in my life was that uh, we were surrounded with lots of Baha'i friends from, from the childhood. And these friends, they were leading their lives despite the hardships because they were not allowed to work. They were not allowed to study. They were not, they were from time to time put in jails uh, and uh, just without any reason. And their houses uh, get uh, raided and, and um, so much discrimination against Baha'is. And also um, that was the political part uh, from the government. And then you had this uh, like, very uh uh like like religious uh beliefs about baha'i faith that like um that we we marry our children and no no sorry have sex with our children or we drink blood when we get together like this uh how do you say uh populist um populist um Oh, like uh, beliefs. I don't that know, were... it's just bullshit. <laughs> it's yes, terrible. yes, well, yes, indeed. Well, I, I, <laughs> but I, I should not be politically correct in this case. Indeed, like very uh, stupid ideas that they were. Well, you know, that's the thing. These are not stupid. That is what, how these make sense of their, you know, world, you know. So in a sense, it's not stupid. It's just how they think. And it's, these were fed mostly by by this Muslim clergics and that, uh, yeah, okay. that was also partly driven. Anyway, so they were 
discriminated not even only by government but also by their neighbor for example and uh and just growing up in that environment uh yeah and, and getting exposed to those teachings and also the the core message of baha'i faith is unity in diversity and you know if you think about it you will realize that this is the challenge of our era that we are so diverse that we 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 have so much different identities and we are in conflict with each other because we cannot accept that someone has a different opinion from me someone looks differently from me someone smells differently from me and and in this really fragmented society what we need is to respect each other despite we don't have to become similar to be able to live in peace we can and that's the core message of Baha'u'llah and Abdul Baha that that I don't want everyone to become Baha'i I don't want everyone to become Muslim let's just respect the human dignity and you know and that is for me something that I, I it is just not only a faith is is principle it becomes uh you know um uh something to you know to to live up to and yes uh so i i i became baha'i by choice and um most of the people that i still cherish their presence in my life they are Baha'is and, and sometimes closer than family because of those, you know, those values that they live their values and that's very valuable for me. Now, I think you might have a unique perspective on this because um, you're Baha'i, but you've grew, you grew up in a culture that is primarily Muslim, right? And um, one thing that I find very positive about Muslim countries is the fact that suicide is virtually absent in countries like Egypt and some other Muslim countries, which I find fascinating. Um, I think, I, what's the stat? It's like um, people in Lithuania were several hundred times more likely to commit suicide than people in Egypt. And obviously that, that is a positive outcome from the, the Muslim teachings, right? And I was wondering if you, from your perspective of having grown up in, in, a, in a culture that is primarily Muslim, is there a way for more secular societies to adapt this type of thinking to, to limit the pandemic of, of suicide um, without being Muslim? Um, you see, suicide uh sociologically speaking um it has to do with many factors uh, psychological factors aside i'm purely talking about because now you said muslim well uh, you know religion provides you with some sort of codes of behavior uh, what what is wrong and what is right so that can have an effect that if i really believe that god has forbidden me to commit suicide and take my life then and if that is so strong for me then yeah i i, I would do it you will be surprised to know that uh i i 
well, don't expect me the statistics, but you know, in Iran, recently the rate of suicide and collective suicides, like in a sense that a family they just they just kill uh, the whole. I mean, they 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 commit suicide collectively, like not one person, due to the fact that the poverty has risen up so much. So out of desperation and no hope. Uh, they they just take their lives and um so in a sense your belief system is one thing and then you have this um explanation that you say okay if you feel alone if you if even though if you're economically and financially doing well but if you have no connections or relations then then um yeah you say okay what's the point you know if you become nihilist or you have no meaning in life so there are certain factors but i can imagine comparing egypt and and iran iran even though it's it has been ruled by muslims in it's a re- it has been always historically religious um country since uh, centuries ago but that belief system that strong belief system about you know the most islamic belief system is not that strong in people um okay so egypt i would i would consider egypt a much more a stronger islamic uh, society than iran Ah, interesting. Okay. Um, but percentage-wise, I well, I don't know if you're going to rely on the stats here, but percentage-wise, <laughs> in Iran, you're more Muslim. Cute. Of course, we'll, uh, we'll stay away from some of those stats and opinions there. But um, I, I, just, to, just to connect the previous episode and, and talking about Iran and, and then moving to Belgium, uh, you left during the green movement, right? Absolutely. That's correct. Okay. Now, now for some people who are listening and they don't know what the, the green movement is, not uh, an environmental movement or a sustainable movement. Uh, some people might know this as the, the Persian awakening or the Persian spring, because that's how it was sometimes referred to in uh, Western media. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more just about your experience here? <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, in uh, 2008, we had this election in Iran, um, uh, which actually made, I'm, I'm saying made, uh, because uh, that was the election that many of people, including myself, who were really pessimist uh, to the whole democratic procedure in Iran, we went and we voted because we really believe that this time, we are going to make, uh, you know, back then it was um, Hos- Musavi, Mir Hossein Musavi, one of the candidates, uh, which was one of the progressives and, and reformist uh, candidates. And we thought, okay, he's our, you know, hope for change. Uh, and the opposite candidate, the competing candidate was this uh, Ahmadinejad, which was became internationally famous for being very stupid and like Bush kind of thing for America. He was our puppet. And even though we we, we strongly believe that the election, the election uh, 
was hijacked and um, many people wanted Musavi and, and um, Ahmadinejad became the president and then it started like yeah okay um, then the protests started the, the demonstrations in not all the countries in major in all the cities but major cities like Tehran back then I was student in Tehran uh, and I was studying sociology and our university was also in one of the one of the yeah hot spots actually uh, green movement had to do with uh, it was it belonged to my generation and I always reflect on that uh, movement in the light of the current um, uh, protests which are going on in Iran uh, and it's called Women, Life, Liberty and uh, so this time is much more intenser it's uh, more widespread and bloodier uh, compared to back then but still when I reflect on it I realize that my generation back then we couldn't really we, we didn't want revolution because we couldn't imagine revolution. We, we, what actually was at best for us, the demand was a reform. We believed in like, okay, revolution is not possible. We couldn't imagine it. And then we thought, okay, we start with reform. Let's, let's sh not shake the structure, but let's start from the, you know, the body of, of, of the society and step for a step step by step go go and change this generation they're saying no way i mean we don't want mullahs i mean that's it we are done with you back then my generation we left we said we don't fit in our election was stolen we um we cannot live up to our values bye bye we build up our career somewhere else uh, we did it like many of my peers they did the same we all went to America to Canada to Europe to Africa myself to just you know seek prosperity somewhere else but this generation which actually really gives me the goosebump is that they say why leaving we stay and we take our country back that's a different, you know, that's a generation which can imagine freedom. You know, back then we had it in us, we wanted it, but revolution was not in our picture. And yeah, so somehow, you know, I, I, I have only admiration for this generation putting their lives in the palm of their hands and going to the streets uh well, and it's really, gonna... really bloodier than before yeah well just for the political sensi sensitivities here uh listeners know and my followers who read my articles know that i'm quite blunt uh but for the political sensitivities reasons i'm just gonna leave that there because i think that's a hopeful message that the generation um is is uh hopeful <laughs> Right, so we'll leave that part there. But now to connect it all, um, this 
led you to eventually immigrate to Belgium, right? So your job now. And one thing that you kind of hinted at the beginning of this episode was this idea of self-actualization and how this whole process, uh, now, now that we have a little bit of idea how it happened, how it started. Um, so this whole immigration process for you had a lot to do with self-actualization. Can you describe a little bit more what you mean by that? Absolutely. Um, so it's a, it's a good question to try to indeed, uh, connect the dots because it has to do with the whole life that I've lived up to now. And, um, from that girl who was, you know, a bookworm and hiding from the chaos you know, inside the pages of books and books and books up to that person that I'm now, I've realized that every step that I went further from home, uh, geographically and also timely, like, you know, 10 years ago, I, 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 yeah, the, the whole concept of me, myself, was different from now. So it, it really stretches in time and, 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 and space. All these exposures that I had to unknowns, it wasn't easy to go to Africa as, 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 as that, that naive, naive girl who thought, oh, I'm going to save, you know, Africa. Uh, all those exposures uh, and those those you know getting out of your comfort zone always put me in front of a mirror that i could see different sides of me you know it self actualization for me was triggered by the fact that i was away from that place that you normally call home Normally, people think that, okay, home has a positive connotations. It's not the same for everyone, unfortunately. Not everyone has this, you know, you think of home, you say, oh, you're warm to love, um, play, fun, um, you know, this comfort and, 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 and not, not everyone has that experience from home. So... The, that's ironic that the further that I got from that home, the more I could discover that uh, to feel at home myself, um, you know, it's, it, it all starts from a geographical and, a, 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 you know, um, a time period in your life and then after sometimes it goes beyond that and then you realize that uh oh i can feel at home despite being far from home because then it becomes this inner uh feeling of you this that you are comfortable with the unknown that you are confident in exploiting the unknown and uncomfortable because it's 
it's absolutely a psychological thing. It's a state of mind that you carry, you know. And the more exposed you are to this uncomfortable things, to different things that you are not really um, at the first, you're, you're, you're even have this bias towards to 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 towards this uh, unknown. And then the more you realize, it, like it's it's a sco- it, it imagine you're a small balloon, and because of the exposure, you get uh, you know you you get expanded and expanded, and somehow then you realize, oh, okay, I uh, I'm more comfortable with everything now. Definitely. So now- self actually, yeah. When you're talking about the self-actualization, are you also referring to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and also his uh, definition? Absolutely. Of- absolutely. You know why? Because for self-actualization, your basic needs need to be met in any way. I mean, first thing is basic need to safety, in my opinion. You need and- to feel safe. Now, now that you do, you would you consider yourself self actualized? Uh, yes, at the yeah. moment, yes, yes. So, it, what I'm curious about much. that is because many people think that self actualization is the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it isn't. Oh. Um, no, no, it's a it's a, me a very it. common misconception. Uh, the top of the pyramid <laughs> is actually self transcendence. But the thing is, is that Maslow started thinking more about this and writing about this near the end of his life. So a lot of this wasn't published. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the critique around self-actualization is that it's focused too much on the self, right? So people were saying, well, it has to be something more than that. And Maslow actually did agree with that. A lot of the critique against self-actualization comes into tr- self-transcendence, which instead of just well self-actualization you know as you said you have to meet uh the safety needs you have to have a love in your family a sense of belonging um and then of course like the fourth step you have the esteem and uh, respect for others and self um and then self-actualization is well how how would you define self-actualization because I think a lot of people say it's like dedicating oneself to a higher goal in a way. Um, Not really. How? What else would you add to it? Uh, And so the way that I see self-actualization is that how you exhaust your potential and you discover all these sides into you. You know, like um, I consider myself... uh, multi-dimensional person why because every step i realize that this dimension of me doesn't necessarily negate or 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 comes in conflict with the other dimension you know <laughs> so um, when i was at home the 17 the first 17 years in mashhad i was a one-dimensional girl the moment that I took off, went to a smaller city, a student city, seven hours later with bus, like, you know, like you just 
get on the bus, seven hours later, you're there. I had this freedom to be myself. Yeah. And once you have this freedom to be yourself in time, I mean, degree of freedom is different because freedom is something that is given to you. It's very, very, very situational. It's very conditional, circumstantial. Yeah, but of course, like just to tie this in with the self-actualization, right? Um, It does also, when some people are self-actualized, some of the criteria is also that you would lack prejudice, accept facts, and like know your potential, which is exactly what you're talking about with like understanding your freedom and it seems like, well, from your whole story over the past two podcasts, you've really realized your potential. Um, but then just to tie back into the self-transcendence, the tr- self-transcendence, what he ex- talks about is more about having these peak experiences and these mystical experiences um, where you feel this connectivity with everything. And I think that's true. You realize like, okay, like once you've realized your full potential, there's still something above that. And that's where like this mystical kind of spiritual realm comes in. And I think that's something that we're kind of losing, especially in our secular societies, is we're kind of losing the sense of mysticism. And I think we talk a lot about the flow state, which does relate to self-transcendence as well. Right. Um, but not really in the sense of the mystical. Right. And uh, I think that's interesting with Maslow because he was one of the first people to start thinking about the flow state, or at least in the West. <laughs> one of the first, yeah. I should specify that, one of the first Western yeah, people to start. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Um, uh, no, well, it's 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 um it's new to me, and I and it made made me thinking. Actually, yes, that's true. Um, does it matter? Uh, yes. Um, but I think we should not forget that you know I myself look at my whole life, and I realize that you know the way that you put it to connect the dots, and I see wow. The dots were connected in my life and I'm now at this moment and I still have things to look forward to. Like, mm-hmm. you know, self-actualization for me, it comes also with kind of a power, like not a power to exercise to others, but a power and inside inner power that gives me the confidence to go forward. Why? Because self-actualization is not all positive in a sense you get to know your dark sides the demons that you have and you you have to face them too and then Mm -hmm. but but once you're comfortable with that you're capable of handling them you're it's either you you know talk about being comfortable and capable with it do you think it's possible to go it's something that i'm thinking about lately can you go backwards on the pyramid uh, that's, that's very related to what I, um, yes, yes, yes. Again, uh, about the concept of safety, you know, once you, you deny or deprive people of their basic needs, y- it's easy to fall from the ladder, you know, and yeah. um, there is a very anal- a nice al- analogy that they say, uh, they put a couple of, um, philosophers and scientists, uh, uh, that they are 
you know, top, the gods of, you know, morality and ethics. And they, they put them together and they say, discuss, um, discuss morality, discuss ethics and good, good and bad. And then every day, uh, they, um, they, uh, they, um, reduce the portion of the food that they get. So every day they become hungry and hungry. And at some certain, these gods of philosophy and, you know, ethics and morality, they, they start fighting with, with each other over food. So you see, in that sense, you are, yeah. Basic needs, it's also related to the concept of refugees. You know, they say, I are refugees or this and that. Sorry, but you put people under so much stress and pressure and traumatic experiences and, 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 and lack of social dignity, human dignity, and you want them not to be angry. You want them, you know, for me, for me, morality is something that you need to be able to afford in a sense. And it doesn't come unless your basic needs to safety, security, hunger, and, 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 you know, Uh, these are meds. What about people who don't get those basic needs stripped away from them? Because I, of course, I understand that let's say a self-actualized person, right? Something happens in their homeland, their safety stripped away, um, Maybe they're taken away from their family, so their love needs aren't met. I'm so sorry, Nolan. I have to make a eye connection with my boy because he's back. Hi, Bobby. Sorry. Yeah, they couldn't stay outside longer. I'm sorry to disturb you. Okay, no problem. No problem. Well, we're coming up on an hour here anyways. Uh, but just to wrap it up, um, I did want to just ask your opinion about going backwards on the the pyramid but not when someone else takes away or some situation strips away safety and the basic needs but sometimes i wonder if trying too hard to self-actualize um or not self-transcendence but really to get this to meet your full potential that really putting this as like your primary objective, if that could in itself strip away love and the basic needs, like sometimes I think about it in my own situation with this project, I really feel that with all my skills, everything that I've learned, that my, everything that I can do, my full potential is this project. Like I'm putting everything I have into this project and on one end, it's the self-actualization in myself. Like, I feel like I can do this, but I'm also doing it because I think it brings something positive into the world. And by trying to make this a success, because of course, by my, my goal being to break down borders, to limit polarization, to share stories from as many people as possible who have traveled, for this to work, I have to reach a lot of people. So I put a shit ton of money <laughs> and time into trying to reach a lot of people and at some point if this keeps going the direction it is I'm going to not have any more money I'm already spending so much time on this project that I don't spend time with loved ones anymore so by trying to self-actualize and reach my full potential I'm actually stripping away 
the levels below it. I'm I'm spending less time with loved ones. I'm doing less to meet my security needs. And it's just something that I've been thinking about. So I was curious about your opinion because I know you think a lot about self actualization uh, your work. Uh, that that sounds maybe paradoxical, but in my opinion, self actualization doesn't have it happen with consciousness in a sense. You know, you don't know. That's the thing. That's, um, you know, we all grew up with some sort of boundaries in our mind, like mental states that we have. And self-actualization to me is like removing those boundaries, you know, and you never know until you know it. That's the thing. It's not a goal that you put, you know, it's, it's like you talked about prejudice. I remember I, I was here in Belgium and, you know, as someone who traveled to so many countries, lived with different diverse cultures, I once came across a gang of, uh, like a couple of Afghani teenagers. And in the middle of the street, suddenly I felt very tense and, and ready to, you know, fight or flight. Uh, and then I... It happened in a moment that I that I, I passed by these these teenagers, Afghani teenagers, and I immediately could hear my own self thoughts that Vida, you are working in this sector, you are advocating diversity. How come you are afraid of these Afghanis? Like I was putting in uh, like putting up with these stereotypes around Afghanis, it took me a day to just reflect on that. And I realized that, oh, in Iran, Afghanis are like refugees here in, in Belgium. They are, there are so many negative stereotypes around Afghanis. They think because they are mostly immigrants, work immigrants, and they think, oh, yeah, Afghanis, this and this. And, and in, when, I, when I was a child, they used to scare, scare of us, of, of Afghanis, that they're kidnapped kids. Even though I'm sure, I am absolutely sure that was just, you know, a very sick uh, projection and, 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 and lots of baseless stereotypes around Afghanis. And uh, it took me a day to get aware of my stereotype and my prejudice towards Afghanis. And then I, I, I don't exaggerate this, I became actually much more peaceful because I was aware of my prejudice now. And since then, I I don't exaggerate. I see Afghanis, I have no problem whatsoever. I don't get into that defense mechanism anymore, defense state anymore. And to me, that's self-actualization, you know? Yeah. And did it come on its own? No, it had to do with all the experience that I had and that specific moment that I could reflect on because I was free to reflect. You know, that's the thing that 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 self-actualization has to do with the the degree of freedom. So in a sense, it it comes after basic needs. You take yeah. me to a camp with with you know when i don't feel safe i'm afraid of anyone not not only afghanis you know so 
it is it is self-actualization I, I i completely get what you mean by this apparently paradoxical thing but you you know it if you know it you know it's not one thing that you consciously uh you know aspire to or or go for it no it's part of you that are unknown to you and you'll soon see them or face them i mean it will come definitely well vita i think that's a beautiful note to end it on especially what you said there with um that once you realize your own prejudices or prejudices, then you yourself will feel more relaxed as well. And you'll find some peace in yourself. And I think that's something that I hope to encourage with this show by sharing everyone's stories. So Vita, again, thank you so much for sharing your story with everyone today. If anyone is interested in learning more about it, uh, please comment on the show. You can comment on whatever platform you're listening on or go to www.withoutborders.fyi. Again, you can access the transcript there and a bunch of interesting articles about cultural psychology. And I'll also put some links in there uh, to Vita's work as well. Uh, Vita, anything you want to finish up with here? Well, Nolan, uh, I can only say that your end note was uh, beautifully said, better than uh, what I myself said. So thank you for that. And thank you for inviting me for to your show. It was very stimulating conversation. And I'm going to have lots of uh, food for thought for the next few days because I, I got some, uh, I got very much inspired. Thank you very much. Perfect. Well, I hope to have you on the show again. And listeners, please tune in next time.